Every day seemed like the company could survive or fail. Like there was this kind of, everybody felt the same sort of need to succeed and, and that like every decision that was being made, every test that we ran, you know, every day that we spent on something could, could spell the difference between the company working or, or failing. I think I learned a lot from that experience and also appreciated how important that sense of urgency and speed is to uh, probably any organization, but certainly a startup that's trying to survive. Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by Liveio, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executives, founders and more exciting people from the startup and new space ecosystem. I'm Sven Shivara. And I'm Dani Seidel and together we are the founders of the Earth Observation Company Liveio and New Space Vision. Today we've got Johnny Dyer, co-founder and co-CEO of Muon Space. Muon is building revolutionary sensors and small sets to dramatically enhance climate monitoring on Earth. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Thanks for having me, guys. So I think uh, this one uh, needs a bit time, right? <laughs> so I've, I've looked into your CV and uh, I think you may be one of the most interesting people in the tech space. So you were leading, if I'm correct, uh, or actually you are in the hall of fame of uh, tech companies. You worked at SpaceX when there were around 50 employees. Is that correct? Yeah, I was an intern there in 2003 and 2004. So this was like very, very early days um, when they were first working on the Falcon 1 rocket, which was a very small, you know, it, it, a small launch vehicle for small satellites uh, long before Falcon 9 or anything else. And then you were also at Blue Origin. Yeah, again, I interned at Blue Origin in college. Uh, sort of early days, they weren't quite as small as SpaceX. I think they were more like 200 people, but it was, um, you know, very early. They were working on a vertical takeoff and landing suborbital hop vehicle that they're now flying tourists on. But it was, you know, th in those days... Uh, if they could get the engines to work, it was it was a lucky day. So it was it was uh, very different than now. Nice. So SpaceX and Blue Origin. The next station uh, was that you were the first hire or one of the first hires at Skybox, which then became part of Google and uh, Terabella, and then actually uh, because yeah. you guys built the sky sets, became part of Planet later. Um, so I, I think it's it's just a lineup of a lot of companies, and then. Um, from the geospatial and the space domain, you also went to Lyft, which you may have heard about. Uh, and then um, after around about two years um, at Lyft, you started your own space company, Muon Space. And uh, yeah, by the way, uh, for the audience in parallel, um, Johnny also is part of the technical advisory group for the methane set at the Environmental Defense Fund. And we're going to talk about all of these things. Um, and um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, so Sven, we're going to start with all the questions now, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because first, very importantly, according to the Stanford's player bio on you, you also had a 5-1 to one record on Stanford's Cardinal baseball team. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think you also could have gone pro and not in space? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I was good enough to play professional, like major league baseball. I probably could have played minor league professional baseball for a few years. But by the time I was through Stanford, I was kind of ready to move on to other parts of my life. So I, I didn't. Super. Okay, well, that's the, the, the new space ecosystem uh, is, uh, yeah, was lucky that, that you took this <laughs> path. Uh, but it, as already mentioned by Daniel, right, you uh, not only worked in the space ecosystem, but then you also worked at Lyft, but you came back. So what's the underlying motivation to yeah, always come back into that, that domain and, and work on space technology? 
I mean, I think the underlying motivation goes back to when I was about six years old and fell in love with space and everything having to do with space and rockets and, um, you know, uh, astronomy and everything else. So I've kind of always been sort of a space geek. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's been hard in my life to ever drift very far from that. Um, you know, my, my time sort of at Google po post skybox and then my time at Lyft were, um, a little bit of a <clears throat> experiment towards things that were not really space related, but still had a lot of overlap with, um, some of the things I'd done in my past, specifically with things like geospatial data and since, you know, large deployed networks of sensors at Google, I was, I was working on the street view cars and then at Lyft, obviously we were working on autonomous vehicles, which, which, you know, interestingly enough, have a lot of overlap with sort of, um, with aerospace systems. They're, they're very, I mean, they're robots, they're yeah. autonomous robots, which satellites are. So, um, yeah, so I think, I think just my love and interest in space has always kind of been a, a gravitational attraction back toward that area. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the same for Daniel and me and think so for so many people working in that industry. Yeah. So it's why it's important to still produce cool sci-fi movies. <laughs> so when right. you were six years old, so what was it? Was it, uh, just rockets or was it science fiction? Um, it was, I, that's a good question actually. So I, um, I definitely read a lot of science fiction, not when I was six, probably when I was starting about 10. Uh, I love the Arthur C. Clarke, uh, books. Um, you know, I, I read a bunch of Asimov and other, you know, the, the classic sci-fi folks, but I also was just real in, into making things and I got into building rockets real early. So I, I actually, um, probably scared my mom to death many times blowing stuff up in the garage, trying to mix rocket fuels at, in, in, and launch things. I, I grew up in Texas, so we grew up on a large property and I was able to you know, blow things up and launch rockets and do stuff that, you know, kids in the city, it's a little harder for. Um, and so that kind of just, you know, stimulated all those things together, stimulated my interest in the field and, and, uh, and love of it. So, so your mom was not surprised when you entered SpaceX, I assume, right? That, ah, I always knew that. <laughs> no, I think she knew exactly where I was headed from when I was about 10 years old. Nice. So, uh, what is very uh, exciting, I think, I mean, SpaceX is a role model in your space, right? And you have You have seen them at a very early stage. Um, and so you also see, have seen Blue Origin in a very early stage. Was there um, a difference between these two companies at that early time? I mean, yeah. regarding setup and the culture? Yeah, there was a dramatic difference. And I mean, I think the best way I can think to characterize it was um, being at SpaceX, um, success sort of was existential feeling. Like it, it was not clear every day seemed like the company could survive or fail. Like there was this kind of, you know, everybody felt the same sort of need to succeed and, and that like every decision that was being made, every test that we ran, um, you know, every day that we spent on something could, could spell the difference between the company working or, or failing. Um, and I, you know, I really, <clears throat> I think I learned a lot from that experience and also appreciated how important that sense of urgency and speed is to, uh, to, probably any organization, but certainly a startup that's trying to survive. When I was at Blue Origin, it was a very different feeling. It was much more like a research organization. So there were a lot of different groups working on different aspects of the problem, kind of at a more measured and deliberate pace. But there wasn't that same sort of sense of urgency and, and sort of like impending doom if we don't uh, make certain milestones yeah. that there was at SpaceX in their days. Yeah. And uh, so do you also think that uh, you still see uh, the difference between these companies now when they have grown up? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I mean, just to say up front, like I don't know many people left at Blue Origin, so I, I can't really speak that much to the culture now. Um, but if you just look at sort of what has proceeded over the last 20 years, I think there must be some commonality to that culture where they're, they're, they're really trying to be very methodical and have not been especially focused on flashiness or speed. It's been much more about steady pace towards, uh, you know, Jeff's eventual goals. Whereas SpaceX, of course, is very much sort of the model of move fast and break things and learn from it. Um, I do think that, you know, SpaceX is probably quite different now than it was then. I mean, just out of necessity, the scale is so much bigger. Um, You know, they're doing so many more things. But I think, you know, to Elon's credit, I think he's been able to keep some element of that urgency, that need for um, kind of speed and 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 everybody pulling towards these huge milestones to keep the company alive, that element of the culture, I think, still uh, remains. And I think, you know, sometimes there's people that would probably say that's a, a toxic element of the culture there, too. Yeah. So I think it's a fine balance. But um, that's definitely seems to have been a key element of, of SpaceX having gotten to where they are. Yeah, I'm always surprised how they push the boundaries. And, you know, like, Investors and everyone always say, tells you focus, 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 but they at the same time stabilize the existing systems by doing these moonshots, right? Uh, I mean, and we have seen uh, the launch uh, last week that was crazy. Yeah, but exactly, you, you only spent a short period of time at both SpaceX and at Blue Origin. You spent much more time at Skybox, exactly. Uh, obviously, also now as Muon Space um, in the Earth Observation Space. So when did you join the company at what stage was the, com- was the company back then? Uh, and when did you leave the company? I say we already like pointed to that, but maybe um, exactly tell us a little bit about that, that entire journey and, and what your role was in it. Yeah, so the, <clears throat> the Skybox journey, you actually have to start a little bit further back when I was still at Stanford. And I, uh, a group of friends of mine in grad school uh, started um, a project for the Lunar X Prize, which was one of the first X Prizes uh, after the the uh, Spaceship One, the, yeah. the manned suborbital X Prize, with the goal to set you know uh, a probe on the moon. And there was a Stanford team that started. Some close friends of mine in AeroAstro started it, um, and they basically tried to pull together a project and funding with uh, Stanford donors to go, you know, compete in that project. I competed in that project as well. Did you really? Welcome, okay. You were competitor. I, I was part. Of, I was part of PT Scientist, which was the German Google Lunar X Prize team, which then ultimately won one of the milestone prizes and then dropped out in the end. But exactly, that was also what like my first ah, foot in the okay. kind of new space ecosystem. Did, did you say you took away this milestone prize for the camera system from Johnny? Yeah, maybe, maybe. We exactly, we won the camera milestone prize. Oh, that's exactly. awesome. So did 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 they take it away from you? <laughs> Uh, well, we we never even got that far because basically uh, the university sort of in the end didn't support us going and competing. Yeah. So we didn't make it that far. We had done some of the early work and studies and things and I was kind of contributing to that, but we didn't ever get to the point of really actually competing on the milestone. So it kind of fell apart at that point. Um, and when it fell apart, uh, Dan Birkenstock, who eventually became the founder and CEO and John, uh, uh, sorry, Julian Mann, who was another part of the project, um, went and teamed up with some other folks in the Stanford Business School. There's a class at Stanford that's basically how, how to start a, a venture-backed yeah. startup. Um, and so they still wanted to do something in space. The Lunar X Prize at Stanford wasn't going to work. And they formed a project team in this class, and the project became Skybox. So basically cool. they did Sky. They, they came up with a business plan for Skybox in that class. Um, and 
at the end of it, uh, their, the professor of the class encouraged them to go start the company. And so that was kind of how the company started. Um, and shortly after they started the company, so this was like 2009, uh, Dan called me and said, Hey, first he said, Hey, we're starting a company and we need to go raise some money, uh, with venture capitalists. And one of the things we have to put in our deck is the name of the team that we would hire. So can we put your name in the deck? And I said, sure, I'm, I'm never going to join your company, but you're welcome to use my name. So he, he, you know, he, I, Dan went off and a couple months later, he called me back and he said, well, uh, it worked. We raised some money and now we've got to actually build this thing. Do you want to come join the company? And, you know, despite the fact I told him I'd never join his company, it was very exciting. And so I said, of course, and, and, and jumped in. And so I think there was a set of us. So there were the four co-founders, Dan, John, Julian, and Ching Yu. Um, and then there was a set of two or three of us that they hired right after they got funded. Um, they were largely friends from Stanford. Um, and we all argued over who was first, second, third, <laughs> but I was somewhere in that first three uh, that got hired right at the beginning. And uh, I mean, uh, we are talking about uh, 2009, right? And we've we've, we've actually yeah. seen on LinkedIn uh, just uh, two weeks ago, so that you had a 10 years anniversary for the Skyset One. So I, I can imagine it was nice to meet all the people, right? Again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was great. And we had a great turnout. We had like 60 people. I mean, it, it's a very, Skybox is still a very close knit uh, group of people. It was a fantastic team and everybody liked working together. And that was, yeah, that was the 10th anniversary of the SkySat One launch, which was in November of 2013. Um, and that satellite's still working. So it's still collecting imagery. Yeah. That's, that's one thing we read actually that you, you said uh, you are most proud of uh, SkySat success and longevity. I mean, considering uh, no failure in 65 in orbit years, uh, why is this so special for you? And what do you think was the secret sauce uh, to that achievement? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, I think that um, we, you know, at Skybox and there's different philosophies on all of this stuff, but we took an approach towards developing the satellites that I think was derived from what was going on in the CubeSat world. So, you know, the, there was a lot of university CubeSat projects at this point. And I think what those demonstrated was that, um, you know, you can build working satellites without, you know, going down the traditional aerospace prime, everything is rat hard, um, costs hundreds of millions of dollars path. Um, but there was also, you know, many of the CubeSats fail or never work or never turn on or don't last very long. And so when we set out For Skybox, we originally started with a very much failures and option mentality, and we're going to go quick and and um, build something. And if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, we'll iterate. But what we found is just the realities of sort of uh, venture financing, the timelines to get launched back then. It was really difficult to get launched. This actually was one of our biggest bottlenecks. Um, what, what what became clear is that we really needed the early satellites to work, and so we kind of pivoted towards a more balanced approach where we did a lot of testing. We did a lot of analysis. We put a lot of redundancy in the systems, um, not to the point where we ended up with satellites that were, you know, like Lockheed satellites that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but they were quite robust, reliable systems by the time we finally launched SkySat-1. Um, and I think the the interesting thing in hindsight, and I've thought about this a lot since, is how you, like, where, where the right balance to strike in that spectrum is. Because there's a lot of others that I think are still taking very much a move fast and break things, throw them up, but they don't work, we'll iterate. Um, and and there's been a lot of success with that model too. We were just talking about SpaceX being successful with that model. But I think if you look closely at SpaceX specifically, they're actually not as far 
into the sort of uh, you know wide open cowboy spaces people think. They have very robust test processes. They have very robust sort of uh, validation processes. And and you look at the success Falcon Nine has had. It's incredibly reliable. It's incredibly robust. Um, and so I think there's really a, a happy medium that has to get struck there between being able to move fast um, and iterate and accept some amount of failure, but also doing enough rigorous engineering up front that you're not just throwing trash in space, which I, I do believe others are doing in, in certain cases. So um, a lot of it, I think, was just, you know, we, we struck a balance that we felt really worked. And in hindsight, it's it's meant that those satellites have been very robust. Um, you know, was it exactly the right balance? I, I don't know. I think that's a difficult question to say. Yeah. But I mean, now exactly as you said in hindsight, right? More and more people move away from building CubeSats to moving slightly bigger um, satellite systems, and we're going to get to that one in a second because exactly that's the that's also the path you're following um, with with Muon Space. Uh, I would have one question, which is a little bit out of the box, which is we've read that exactly SkySat was also capable of capturing video, right? And I personally always ask myself, like, what was the commercial use case behind capturing video? <laughs> There really wasn't one. So, I mean, so the interesting thing about the sky sets was we, for the first time, used what's called a framing sensor, not yeah. a line scanner. So you can think about a two-dimensional image sensor like in an SLR, not not a, a line scanner that was kind of scanning a- along the earth. And that was not for video. That was just because of the approach we were taking to collecting imagery. But it had the side benefit that we could we could essentially run it in a video mode and collect video with the same system. And so... We knew that we would be able to do this when we designed and launched the satellites. We didn't really have a clear understanding of a market or use case, but you know, once you launch the satellite, um, we 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 started doing those collects. And I mean, it looks we dope. never really found a truly. Uh, I'm sorry. It looks what? dope. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It's. I mean, when we first took the videos, it was mind blowing. I mean, you can see cars driving around on streets. We we took these really cool. Um, videos of like mines where you can see not only you can see the parallax in the mine because of the depth of it as the satellite flies over but you can see the individual trucks moving around so they're, they're really cool videos but I don't know if we ever really found a great uh, use case for them. Yeah and such a system like the the first uh, SkySet satellite what was the cost of that one because it said right you used proven hardware but you didn't use that proven or maybe not that expensive hardware like a Lockheed satellite so what was the end the end system cost? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit depends, right? It depends on how you count it. If if you don't count the engineering, you know, time and energy that went into it, um, sort of the non-recurring component, we could we could build one of those satellites for less than about four million dollars. Um, and then obviously at the time we were launching them, it cost somewhere between five and eight million dollars to launch yeah. them. So, um, you know, the kind of round number that we had in mind was it was something like ten million dollars to get one to space. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that's pretty pretty solid for like I mean back back then. So that's a, that's a that's a cheap satellite. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by LiveView. LiveView's mission is to unlock the full potential of Earth observation data for humanity and life on Earth through AI. We are the global market leader in infrastructure monitoring and are bringing the power of satellite data analytics to other industries globally. Talk to us to find out how satellite data can benefit you and your company via podcast at live-eo.com. And I mean, we, we are still benefiting from this at Live here, right? We are uh, actually tasking a lot of sky sets. Uh, the imaging mode you mentioned is driving our engineers crazy who, who derive 3D models, but they also like it. 
so uh, so definitely um like we know we know the sky sets pretty well um i mean you talked about a lot about the successes and the exciting stuff you worked on is there if you if you look, look back is there something you are not proud of or better said what you would do differently today or maybe are doing differently at moon um yeah i mean i i think i think probably um it's a little so I, let me just lead off by saying hindsight's 2020 and i think it would have been very hard to have known this or done something differently at the time but i think we definitely um were not focused enough on getting to market with the product customers would pay for early even if it wasn't the eventual long-term aspiration we had for the company which was was sort of like much more deep analytics and derived products and i i'm a little hesitant in saying that because our original go-to-market actually was quite pragmatic we were we were developing what we called sky nodes which were these um ground stations that we could sell to international customers they would put a ground station in their local region and they could directly task and downlink imagery from the satellites and that was kind of an existing business model that uh, GUI and Digital Globe had pioneered around the world, and and it was like a very tangible, um, you know, go to market approach that we could get to tens of millions or even hundred, uh, you know, low hundred million dollars a year in revenue. So we were doing it. Um, I think we weren't quite focused enough on it, and specifically, I think once we were bought by Google, we really lost that focus largely because Google didn't see that as an attractive business. They they really they really wanted to shoot for the moon more. Um, no pun intended, and and sort of told us to give up on kind of the near-term uh, tangible business in exchange for trying to do something really big. And in hindsight, I think that was a mistake. But but at Google, you still worked on an Earth observation constellation? Like, was it still the intention of working to monitor the Earth? Yeah. So, I mean, Google um, Google bought, bought Skybox for a, a few different reasons, um, one of which was for the imagery. So, so the Geo, the team that does Google Maps, was interested in the imagery yeah. for Maps mapping purposes and then there was a lot of interest in if you could get the, to high cadence imagery so regular revisit much higher than what they were getting from current satellites what that would enable from a product perspective um, there was also a project at the time at google uh, this is in, this is kind of an interesting aside uh looking at doing what starlink is now doing yeah. so sort of global, global communications and that was a significant component of, of sort of Google's decision to buy Skybox was the satellite technology itself that could be applied to other missions like communication as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, but but then it ultimately it seemed like Google departed from that idea and sold exactly the entire team, including the satellites, right to Planet. Not not that long after. Yeah. So Google went through a period, uh, you know, around the time that they bought Skybox of really expanding outside the core business with acquisitions. So we were an example of this. They also bought a UAV or a, a high altitude aircraft company called Titan Aerospace at the same time. It's also when Andy Rubin was there buying robotics companies like crazy. So Boston Dynamics got bought. There was a bunch of other ones. Um, and so that was kind of a, uh, you know, Google's expanding its, its view on the technology that it should be building. And Uh, kind of going out and acquiring a lot of things that were pretty far outside the core business, but they were very interested in expanding into, and satellites was one of them. Yeah. Um, and about three years into the the, the time we were at Google, uh, Ruth, the CFO, really started saying, we've got to make more sense of this portfolio. All of these things that are outside the core business are costing the company a lot of money. Many of them were costing the company a lot more than we were. Um, and so that kind of started a process of them 
frankly, shutting down a lot of things. Yeah. And so you saw that Google sold off all the robotics companies. You saw them shut down the the, the um, high altitude aircraft program. A lot of the Google X projects like Loon ended up getting shot, shut down. And we were kind of part of that that overall trend. So Ruben's shopping cart reminds me uh, of the time when you have kids. They always want to have the new toy. And at some point in time, they don't play with them anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they don't exactly know what they're going to do with the toy once they get it either. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But but exactly then Google decided to sell um the assets to to Planet and obviously now we use Skysets as at at Planet or buy the data from Planet. But uh, you moved on to Lyft later on and by while working at Lyft you also advised the environmental impact fund on exactly more, um the development of methane set. Uh we can assume just from the timelines that during that period also your idea mature to start your own company, right? So can you tell us a little bit about um, exactly the project you have been working on and I think you're still involved in and w what led you to the decision to start Muon Space? Yeah, so <clears throat> MethaneSat um, is a project that started about, um, it's probably, I'm trying to remember exactly, it's probably around 2017, so close to six years ago. Um, and it was really... Uh, the Environmental Defense Fund had a long program in understanding methane emissions and, how, and the impact on global warming and climate change. Um, and they saw that really the meat, that there was this huge data gap in terms of what the global methane emissions sources were, especially in oil and gas, yep. and that the only way to fill that gap was with satellite measurements. And NASA and ESA, none of the, the major government organizations were planning missions that could fill that gap. And so they decided to go out and, and essentially do it philanthropically. Um, and so I got contacted by them, I think it was in 2017 when they were just starting to form the project. And they were basically, they, they had done some initial groundwork with the science team and other things and, and had worked with the Smithsonian um, Astrophysical um, Group at Harvard. But they were starting to try and build a team and they were looking for somebody to lead the team yeah. um, that would build the satellite. And at the time I told them, this was, I was still at Google that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested, but I actually introduced them to Tom Ingersoll, who was the CEO at Skybox before Google acquired it. And Tom ended up joining that project and leading it um, for the last six years. Um, and right when he joined, he said, well, I want to create a technical advisory group and invited me to join the technical advisory group. So that's kind of how I got involved. Um, and that's now, you know, that that project is uh, has been in progress for the last five or six years. They're supposed to launch in March of next year. So Methane Sat, the first satellite, will launch um, on a transporter mission early next year, and it's a really um, exquisite instrument. I mean, it will it will map um, very very small levels of methane emissions in the oil and gas industry globally. It kind of it, it, you know really really uh, high precision levels. Yeah. and I mean it's super relevant, right? So for everyone um, who who obviously has read up about climate change knows how how damaging methane is, even comparatively speaking to CO two, right? So I think it's super relevant in anyone who, who knows the Earth observation space. There are some companies which are building methane monitoring satellites, but as you've mentioned, by far not enough to recreate that coverage, which is necessary to really pinpoint to the areas where methane is being released to the uh, atmosphere. So so will the data, um, because uh, I mean, um, seems like, uh, I mean, the um, New, Ze New Zealand Space Agency and others Uh, non-governmental organizations are involved will it be available for free or like in open data yeah so i'm i'm not 
the expert on this, but my understanding is that <clears throat> there's a there's sort of a community of science partnerships that EDF has around the data, and the data will be made immediately available to all the sort of science partners um, as part of the, the the project for free. And then their goal is to eventually make all of the data fully open and free. But there's sort of a uh, validation period they're going to go through as they collect data. Um, calibration validation period before they release it openly just to make sure that the quality is good you know in some ways this is very sensitive data yeah. because there's a lot of people in the world that are uh have a lot of um you know money and other things on the line depending on what the data says and so they're they're really trying to be careful about <clears throat> making sure that the the data they release um is sort of impeccable from a from a defensibility perspective but their goal is to make it all eventually completely open to you know uh, whoever wants to look at it, essentially. So another exciting uh, space uh, chapter in the history where you have your hands in somehow. So, uh, I mean, let's talk about Muon Space. Uh, so uh, can you tell us a bit what Muon Space is doing and uh, what's your company vision? Why, why did you start it? So, yeah, I think the i mean methane sat is a pretty good intro into muon space because um in the context of advising on that project i got to meet uh dan mcleese who's our chief scientist at, at muon space he was the head of the science advisory board at methane sat he's a former chief scientist for jpl um and ruben rorschneider who's our was the chief engineer for methane sat um and dan and i started this long series of conversations basically premised on the idea that you know methane sat was this incredibly um, inspiring mission because it is making a measurement that is incredibly important to the future of the climate. Uh, it's something that governments have not been able to do for various reasons or have not been willing to do. And it's doing it um, using entirely non-traditional funding sources. And it's sort of a, um, a cost and timeline that would be unheard of for, for a traditional government mission. So there's all these aspects of it that were super interesting and inspirational. And basically we were looking around and saying, how, how do we make more of this happen? Like th this is clearly a need. There's there's huge data gra gaps across a whole bunch of sectors of the earth system. Um, and we really need just, you know, a, a much larger blanket of diverse sensors in space. How can we make that happen? And so as we started iterating through those ideas, what became pretty clear and it became clear as well on the methane sap project. So that helped kind of us uh, localize this is that while there's a lot of there's been a lot demonstrated in new space and there's a lot of, there has been a lot of success. The sort of the base supply chain for building, launching and operating sensors in space is still super fragile. Um, it's very unreliable and it's, um, it's fragmented in the sense that for instance, with methane sat, they've kind of had to pull this mission together from a set of disparate suppliers in a very fragmented and difficult way. And that's been very painful. It's caused them to take a lot longer than they originally expected. And it's, caught, it's caused the project to cost more than they really originally expected. And so all of this kind of pointed to the need for an organization that could do these type of missions, these sort of, um, you know, science grade remote sensing missions, but using a lot of the, the sort of things that we learned at Skybox, heavy vertical integration, uh, very, very rapid, you know, sort of agile um, uh, in short timelines to deploy things. And also a real focus on the quality aspects, the reliability aspects, the thing, things that like calibration and validation that are really important to ma actually making these data sets usable by um, a lot of the end stakeholders. And so that was the origin of the idea from Yuan is that we're going to create an organization that will substantially lower the barrier 
to getting sensors like this in space. Okay, cool. And it's exactly at that um, that that kind that compromise between uh, new space, meaning very, being very quickly, and old space also being very accurate in terms of like exactly the measurements you would be producing from the sensors. So we've had last week or the last podcast we've recorded was with a German company, um, which was uh, in the area of building small sets as well. Um, and over the last couple of years, we have seen more and more, so to say, satellite as a service companies establishing themselves. Would you classify yourself as a satellite as a service company? And and if so, how do would you say you differ from companies like Loft and others? Yeah, I mean, so yes, I would classify us as a satellite as a service company. We really like to think of ourselves as a constellation company. So virtually everything that we're working on um, is really enabled by a constellation, not a single satellite. And so everything that we do is kind of oriented around the idea of deploying larger numbers of satellites working in coordination to, to, to host these sensors. So yeah, but in general, we do see ourselves as satellite as a service company. I think some of the, the key differentiators from Yuan over what else is happening in industry. So one is that I think as y'all alluded to early on, we believe that for a lot of reasons, um, the right place to be operating from sort of a size, weight and power perspective is quite a bit larger than what a lot of traditional, more CubeSat-like systems have focused on. Um, you know, SkySats were about 100 kilograms, and that's kind of where we're starting at Muon. Uh, just if you look at what it takes to collect valuable data sets, usually the instruments uh, require more aperture power data uh, to the ground, signal processing than can be ac accommodated in a really small system. And then that coupled with the fact that launch has, has gotten so much more accessible and cheaper due to SpaceX really allows you to deploy large numbers of very capable spacecraft at sort of CubeSat-like costs historically. And so yeah. um, we're very focused on kind of what I would call sort of the microsatellite and up, uh, and, and, and up, I think is an, is an important qualifier, um, uh, sort of design space. And then there's a lot of things that we've invested in heavily that we think are really outside the satellite that are important to making these missions successful that I think others are less focused on. So one is... Um, we have a, a sort of a deeply integrated, uh, vertically integrated hardware software stack on both the spacecraft, the software running on the spacecraft, our mission operations, and a simulation kind of digital twin platform we call MuSim that allows us to um, both optimize over the, uh, you know, like a new concept for a constellation and understand what the key constraints are and how to sort of design for a customer something that will really fulfill their product needs. But then it also makes sort of our um, testing and operation of the constellations much more efficient because we have this entire virtual world that we can do things in uh, that's deeply integrated with all the physical things that we're building. So um, there's a couple of key IP things there that we think are really important. Um, the other one is that we're able to go kind of further upstream and further downstream on the mission space than, than most, I think, space as a service companies who are much more trying to be sort of either just satellite focused or very raw bits in and raw bits out focused. Yeah. Um, our, our belief is that a lot of these, you know, a lot of missions and a lot of customers that are wanting to deploy sensors um, really can benefit from having a partner that can help them, you know, also with things like instruments and also with things like how to efficiently process the data that the instruments are, are providing and produce real valuable products. And so we're really trying to um, build a stack that goes 
you know, kind of across the full life cycle of a remote sensing constellation, not just focusing on getting a widget in the space. Yeah, that's super interesting because uh, last la in the last podcast we also asked about uh, the definition for a satellite as a service. So you you should definitely tune in as as a, as a listener. But for you, it means actually at Nuance Space you design, you manufacture, you operate the satellites, and even uh, taking care of data infrastructure if needed. So where would you say uh, do you stop? So what actually do your customers have to do to benefit from an asset in space? Yeah, it, it it varies a little bit. So one, I mean, one of the things that I will say is that we're we're somewhat flexible on where we start and end uh, with a customer mission. We really have the ability to go as far up as um, substantially helping develop an instrument, um, and and we have some work we're doing right now with customers where we have some core software defined radio technology that is is really useful for for the instrument they want to fly, and so we're applying that technology. And then we can go as far down as sort of, yeah, kind of cloud-based data processing pipelines and obviously all the network infrastructure to get from the satellite into the cloud efficiently. We're not today doing higher level products for customers. So we're still kind of staying at the early calibrated, but sort of L1 level in terms of the products that, that we're producing. Um, but all of the kind of infrastructure required to orchestrate um, data from the spacecraft to ground and get to those early states of products is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to build that stuff. And, um, and what we see in industry is people kind of repeating that same work over and over again. So we think there's a lot of value in having those as sort of repeatable infrastructure pieces. Um, in terms of how a customer works with us, you know, it can, it can start with several of our customers start with, we have an instrument. So we already have developed a camera, for instance, And we really want to fly this in a constellation format. So we can work with them to optimize the spacecraft um, in a constellation to deploy those in space, operate them for them, and then again, deliver the data um, anywhere from sort of L0 out to L1, depending on what they need uh, to drive their products. Um, but as I mentioned, we can also start even earlier with customers. So a good example is over the last year and a half, we've been working on a project again with a large uh, nonprofit customer, NGO. It's actually a set of nonprofits. Um, in the wildfire space. And they came to us and basically asked a very early basic question, which is what can a constellation of satellites uh, do in terms of early detection and monitoring of wildfire? And so we started with that question and did what we called formulation study and, and have now conceptualized a constellation that could really um, substantially move the needle in terms of wildfire detection and monitoring. And we're still kind of working through what the path forward looks like on that. It could be a coalition of us with some other companies. It could be a number of different things. But we're able to work all the way from sort of the remote sensing science and the instrument side through the satellite deployment and operations uh, to go execute a mission like that. And you already mentioned a couple of customers without saying who they are. So could you tell us a little bit about maybe what is a customer you can speak about? Uh, Yeah, we, we, we just announced publicly um, Hydrosat is one of our customers. So y'all are probably very aware of Hydrosat. Hydrosat is um, is looking to fly a constellation of thermal infrared uh, imagers, which is focused on basically looking at um, uh, water stress in agricultural crops. And that's a really, there's a, a, a set of remote sensing techniques that have been proved out with the EcoStress mission that JPL flew that show that you can develop these very, leading indicators of crop stress by looking in the thermal infrared region. And so um, we're working with them to fly a constellation of those instruments. That That's an example. Um, right now we have a contract with, uh, with the U.S. defense customer that is 
um, interested in um, certain measurements for weather forecasting. Uh, the, the, the Air Force in the U.S. has a big weather forecasting component, and we're collecting uh, what are actually RF measurements uh, uh, that, that can um, basically improve the weather forecasts. And that's actually, again, a case where um, the instrument technology is ours. It's, it's this based on the software-defined radio technology we have. And we're actually building product all the way out to sort of L1 products for the L4, the Air Force. So it, it seems like you're already working on a lot of stuff. And uh, Sven and I had, had the luck to visit you guys in the office in the in the Bay Area, um, which was the former Skybox uh, office. Uh, and um, I mean, we met uh, just quickly uh, on the floor, right? And it was a chat there now for 20 minutes or something like this. Um, and we could also see a lot of other employees there. So so can you tell us a bit how how big the company is to date? Yeah, we're about uh, 70 uh, people now, um, and we're growing pretty fast. We've more than doubled in the last year, um, and that's spread out. We have about half of that is in the Bay Area, but we also have a bunch of folks remote spread out in other other areas, primarily in uh, sort of Denver area and L.A., but also, you know, kind of random other places around the country. And we could see, like, a really super senior people, uh, like also the Hall of Fame of other companies like Descartes Labs, Satellogic, and so on and so on, right? All all in the same office, super exciting stuff. Uh, so 70 people, you are working a lot, but uh, how is the company funded? Uh, did you replicate uh, the Skybox approach, like the pitch deck with a team of a lot of folks which are not there yet? Well, how did you fund the company? Um, that's, that's a good question. No, so we're venture funded. Uh, we've raised two rounds. We've raised uh, $35 million in venture uh, so far. Um, the we the the deck for the, when we raised money was definitely heavily premised on the team, uh, specifically the founding team, because we had a very experienced founding team. Um, but it was not... Uh, at the point we were raising money, we already knew that team was joining. So it was a little <laughs> bit... Uh, we were a little bit ahead of where Skybox was when it started. Nice. But long story short, it's a bit similar approach, right? Yeah. So if you have a nice yeah. team, uh, you you can really uh, raise capital for a space company. Nice. Yeah. That's right. And I assume that was also one of the key elements of being able to launch a satellite so quickly into orbit, right? So as I already mentioned, less than two years or about two years after the inception of the company, you've been able to launch your first satellite to orbit. What would you say are other key learnings or uh, or Yeah, other components of that secret sauce which allowed you to be that quick in really launching hardware into orbit? Um, I mean, we I've mentioned this a couple of times, but we really believe strongly in vertical integration. Um, it's It can be challenging because it requires investment. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of, you know, core investment required to make it work, but it gives you an incredible amount of control of things like cost and schedule. So once you have a lot of the design and supply chain within your control, you can very rapidly um, respond to issues that come up and 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 uh, react and, and recover. And I think that was absolutely crucial for us in going from zero to that satellite built and launched in, in, in around two years, as you mentioned. And I think as we look forward, it's even more critical as we start to scale up. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges in this industry right now is supply chain. And if you look at the history of most of what's going on in the satellite, even the new space satellite world, it's just plagued by delays and sort of reliability issues. Um, and we really think that that sort of ownership in the end of the hardware software supply chain build process for these systems is what's going to enable us to move faster and more reliably than everybody else. Yeah. 
Yeah, we had a similar comment uh, yeah, a couple of episodes ago from another company which was buying from suppliers. And I asked myself, like, why can it be like that? That you try to buy parts from a supplier and they tell you, well, yeah, there's a delay. And for me, one of the reasons could be that um, in the past, they only delivered like one-off components to a lot of like com companies building satellites. So there was never the case that they would sell exactly that same component again to that uh, to that same customer or that there were just so few suppliers which could offer that part, right? This is not changing. Um, and, I, and I'm, yeah, and I'm curious who's going to survive from these suppliers, which are yeah, notoriously late in sometimes supplying some of these parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty big mix out there right now. I think the industry is maturing in certain ways, but it's a it's not going to happen overnight. And so, yeah, again, like I think you know, being able to control your destiny on things like supply chain is really important. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we learned learned two things today, uh, which also the European space ecosystem, thinking about the launchers, uh, let's start with the launchers, can learn from. Right, it's the vertical integration and having like really a few suppliers doing a lot internally. And that combined with this uh, move fast and break things approach actually brings you faster to stable market leading systems, right? So yep. um, we would love to talk about in the in the last minute uh, about the ecosystem because it's just so exciting and so many things are happening. Um, so what do you think um, are the key drivers uh, that will change the earth observation ecosystem as a starting point in the coming years? Um, so, I mean, I think one thing is um, uh, diversifying the types of sensors that are being uh, deployed to space. And I think we're already seeing it, but, you know, most of what I would call kind of the early new space remote sensing um, wave, the first wave that like Skybox and Planet and I would say the SAR companies were part of, um, were very focused on visible imagery and, you know, sort of high resolution task systems. The doves are a little bit different, but I still think that's a relatively fair characterization of what has largely been focused on. And and that has great utility. I mean, I think the biggest utility is in intelligence, frankly, is in sort of government intelligence applications. But there's a huge amount of other, of other space out there to make measurements, uh, especially in constellation formats from space that can influence everything from weather to agriculture, to water resources, to um, other environmental issues, to things like um, you know, energy monitoring. I think, you know, Hydrosat is a really good example of a different phenomenology, thermal imagery that has a lot of potential benefit um, outside of what what sort of visible imagery can do. Uh, there's a European company called Satellite View that just launched a, yeah. a thermal infrared imager, which is incredible, incredible data. So I think quick note to our listeners, um, since the recording of this episode, Satellite View actually lost contact with the infrared satellite that Johnny mentioned here. This actually happened one week before we had an episode scheduled with their CEO, which was subsequently postponed. LiveVO and New Space Vision extend our deepest sympathies to the team at Satellite View and wish them nothing but success in the future. Incredible data. So I think I think what we're going to see is there's going to be a large diversification, largely because the barriers have come down so much, and that's going to open up applications that people haven't thought of before that are way outside of sort of the traditional um, visible imagery uh, uh, regime. Um, the other thing I think is going to be a big change is how the data is used is going to evolve a lot as as um, as AI and machine learning become more, more um, common and prevalent and um, are able to use the large amounts of data that constellations produce effectively. And I think, you know, the, the 
the specific example of this I like to use is if you look at weather forecasting, the way that weather forecasting has been done for 50 years is with traditional physics-based super con- uh, supercomputer models fed by satellite measurements. Um, but they the performance of the models and the and the data produced by the satellites has kind of been in lockstep, yeah. uh, mutually constraining each other in the sense that there's not been a lot of value in producing higher resolution, more more quantity of satellite measurements because the models can't easily accommodate them until there's a whole generational uplift on the supercomputer and the model side. And I think what we're going to see is that we're already seeing in weather forecasting a move towards more machine learned approaches. And one of the things that unlocks is the ability to uh, uh, consume and accommodate much larger amounts of data of different types much more rapidly. And so I think those are going to kind of start uh, feeding each other in a virtuous cycle, uh, enabling, um, you know, better modeling from more data, which is then going to drive the demand for more diverse and, and, um, and denser data from satellites. Yeah, and we've tried to play a role in that, that equation, right? Because exactly, I think that over the last couple of years, we had a lot of satellites producing incredible data sets, but apart from the governmental and defense sector, they haven't really seen a lot of uptake. But yeah. uh, I think like, yeah, exactly, we're going to see that more and more. And so... Uh, I, I'm I, obviously we want to stay in touch uh, to always be uh, on the forefront of the companies uh, using the data sets the new satellite constellation are producing. But a little bit apart from Earth observation, um, obviously as you already mentioned, right, we are all watching um, the developments at SpaceX around Starship and access to space. Apart from cheaper access to space, what are other areas of the ecosystem where you think we need to see? Uh, more maturity, where we need to see more development. Yeah, I think there's two two primary places. One is in um, is in sort of the <clears throat> maturity of the supply chain, which I mentioned before. And and I, I think my analogy here is I I look at the auto industry. Um, Daniel's favorite example. He's also always giving auto examples and automotive uh, examples. And I and actually yeah. uh, wanted to have other examples from ChatGPT, and it still gave me automotive examples. <laughs> Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, there's a reason for it, right? The auto industry is pretty incredible in terms of how it's structured. Um, and, and what you see there is you see this really sort of mature layered supply chain, uh, starting with OEMs, then tier ones, tier twos and down. Um, and and it, it, it enables a, a, lo- a scale in the industry that, you know, aerospace is far from, but I think we need to get closer to, to really um, make a lot of these things that we want to see happen, happen. I do think there's some differences with the auto industry. Like I, I'm skeptical that the aerospace industry can or will ever get to the same scale as auto as the auto industry, and so there are limitations to that model. Um, whether there needs to be as many layers of the supply chain in aerospace as there are in auto is a big question in my mind. I think there's still going to be a big place for more vertical integration in aerospace than hap- t- typically happens in auto. Um, but but so so that whole supply chain, both hardware and software, I think needs to get needs to mature a lot. Um, the other thing is, I think sort of data infrastructure for satellites uh, still needs to improve dramatically. I mean, I think one of the biggest bottlenecks that continues to hamper specifically remote sensing systems is being able to get data to the ground and the large volumes of data that these sensors collect to the ground. And that's a combination of a lot of different things. It's a combination of radio, you know, the performance of the radios on the satellites, the availability of ground stations, and the number of ground stations on the ground. Um, but it's also related to things like standardization of the protocols used by 
um, these systems, which is starting to happen, but needs to accelerate. Um, and then I think there's a huge opportunity there as the large communication constellations come online to move from, you know, focusing on uh, space to ground downlink to, to connecting remote sensing satellites into the, to the satellite networks directly through things like optical connections. And then that totally changes sort of the whole equation for for where the bottlenecks on the data side yeah, are. And that's at the end directly coupled to the revenue these uh, companies which own the space assets can make, right? And I think there is so much innovation potential. That's, that's right. why also specialization of life, you right? And the data pipelines on the ground for the products, uh, you know, like it's, yep. it's, it's very important that you have this, this distribution of the work. Um, so last question about the ecosystem, like Sven and I always say that commercial earth observation and communication um, may decouple the in-space infrastructure involvement from governmental budgets, right? Because you have a sustainable flow of money and demand, as you also said before, for satellites. Um, and this may enable other cool applications like in-space manufacturing also. Are you already thinking about these uh, uh, other opportunities out there? If you, as a company, have the skill to build space systems? Um, we, I mean, we only think about it in the sense that we occasionally run into other groups working on those things and, you know, have conversations with them. Our, you know, our mission as a company is very much focused on earth and yeah. trying to, uh, make sure that we keep earth as livable as po possible. Um, so we don't have to go somewhere else. And so I think, um, with that in mind, our, our focus has not been on things like, um, other missions in space unless they're directly related to our understanding of Earth. Yeah. But I think like this is something like a common goal which we can can all rally behind. Yeah. Also here at Live Your our vision is also to um to completely unlock the full potential of Earth observation for um humanity and life on Earth. So uh that's a great uh joint goal right there. Thank you very much for for taking the time. We always have one final question which we ask our guests, which is who should we bring on the next time? And where you may can do an intro. And Absolutely. I mean, you work with Elon Musk, just <laughs> kidding. Maybe, maybe a bit. <laughs> um, well, I, I'll try. I, well, I'll try one. You may have already spoken with him. I, I, I didn't check. Have you all spoken with Aravind? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was on yeah. his podcast. He was on ours. Okay. So, yes. Yeah. So, okay. He, he would be a good one. It sounds like you've already spoken with him. I, I mean, I think... Um, I think y'all would be really interested to talk to Dan who started Skybox, Dan Birkenstock. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds exciting. He's got exciting. some great stories and I can definitely make that intro. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Johnny. That was, I think, uh, a, a great couple of minutes. We would have so many more questions. For example, whether uh, BP ever took up uh, your proposal of stopping the... Uh, uh, the Horizon spillage, but maybe that's <laughs> that's for the second part of this podcast. So everyone who tuned in, thank you very much for listening in. Donny, thanks again for taking the time. Um, and exactly, make sure that you tune also in for the next time when we are interviewing the next person here in on our podcast. And Donny, thanks and have a great day. Yeah, thank you guys. All right, lift off and the clock is Liftoff. We have a liftoff.